0: to the Bookaholics podcast, a safe space for critical thinking and free interpretation of literature. Hi, Bookaholics, and welcome back to our last podcast episode. It has been wonderful to lead this podcast, but our uni assignment ends with this last task. So, unfortunately, there will be no more book club. However, should you feel like refreshing your mind, please do listen back to our podcast episodes and read the blog entries. But we will skip the morning until the end of this episode. So, these last two weeks we have analysed E.L. James' Fifty Shades of Grey and Matt Haig's The Midnight Library from a psychoanalytical approach mainly. As usual, today we will be broadening those commentaries to explore another critical paradigm. In this case, it will be deconstruction. Now, the construction is a trick approach, but I am sure you will enjoy it as soon as you understand how it works. Let's dig into it. Needless to say, a book about BDSM and a self-help novel have little in common. But let's not be concerned about it today. In this episode, we will be focused on how both texts hide inconsistencies that will leave us wondering if the novels have a fixed meaning. Spoiler, they don't. Deconstruction is a theory that falls under post-structuralism, and as the name of this critical movement suggests, it breaks with structuralist criticism. Structuralists believe that our society is made up of hierarchical opposites, where one of the components in a binary is privileged. Hence, we would think of white or non-white from a Eurocentric point of view. Poststructuralism challenges this hierarchy, demonstrating that it is flat instead. To accomplish so, today we will be hunting for hierarchical contradictions that can be found after a close reading of the texts. I will summarize the plots of these novels. Let's see if you're able to spot the first hierarchies that we will be challenging later. The Midnight Library tells the story of Nora, a woman in her thirties who is far from satisfied with her life. She bears a lot of regrets in her soul and constantly wonders about how things would have evolved if she had made other choices. On the day when the plot is set. Nora has been fired from two different jobs, her cat has just died. Desperate, she decides that it is best to finish her suffering for once. After she ingests more pills than a human body can hold, she loses consciousness only to later wake up at the midnight library, where books hide the parallel story about where other decisions would have led her. It is clear that the main hierarchy here is life and death, no? On the other hand, Fifty Shades of Grey is concerned with the dark relationship between Christian Grey and Anastasia Steele, that of a master and his submissive. In other words, it is a novel that deals with an insight into BDSM. This one is an even more obvious binary master and submissive, of course, as in a patriarchal society. And you see, you will find that the construction is often intrinsically linked with further approaches such as Feminist Theory, in this case. In the first section, we will be rethinking the opposites in the Midnight Library, from the most obvious ones, such as the ones I have just mentioned, to the least obvious. Therefore, the first binary opposite that we must challenge is indeed life and death. First of all, after Nora overdoses, we expect her to be death. In other words, not alive anymore. But we soon find out that this is not completely true, in fact she is in an in betweenness state, as if she had set her body on standby. She is no longer alive, but she is not dead either. And the library is another kind of limbo, another in-betweenness in the binary of life and death. Mrs. Elm, the librarian who guides her on her journey, states that death is the inverse of possibility. This thought-provoking quote suggests that although Nora may suffer from depression and hopelessness that life will get better by committing suicide, she rejects the possibility of developing her potential to resolve this dissatisfaction. And here we find another paradox, the good and the bad. As Nora reads the different lines her life would have taken, she realises that at first what promises to be a nice life is just a poisoned apple, And at the end of the novel, her mind changes abruptly to believe that the life that she had decided to leave behind was not that bad after all. It was her life, and only she could make it better. Satisfaction at the same time evokes another opposite, pain and pleasure. It is a general belief that for one individual to live an agreeable life, they should not endure any kind of pain, or at least as little as possible. However, let's analyse this on a deeper level. If we lived a pain-free life, would we really know what suffering feels like? Of course not. Then, we would not appreciate the moments of happiness. Anyway, life and pain go together, in case you hadn't realised it yet. In the book, Nora decides to kill herself because she's in pain and incapable of seeing the good things or the potential for good things in her life. Later, when she experiences that in all of her life variants, there is pain, she starts to regret not having valued her actual existence. Listen to these two quotes regarding pain. The only way to live is to learn. And the only way to learn is to live. They seem contradictory altogether, don't they? Well, they do in fact fit one another. Let's see that. The only way to live is to learn suggests that we will only learn if we experience different emotions, especially the negative ones involved in our mistakes. As cliché as it may sound, yes, the only way to live is to learn from our own mistakes and try to avoid them in future situations. Then the only way to learn is to live means that we can only learn if we live. Pain is attached to life. Nora's avoidance of deconstructing her own pain made her feel dead when she was fully alive still. If you are only existing but don't develop any interests, purposes, or challenge yourself and face your fears, are you really alive? The answer is in the following quote. Those who feel alive are already three parts dead. Now we will move to the dark side through Fifty Shades of Grey. We have already agreed that the main hierarchy to be challenged concerns gender relations. In fact, traditionally men are regarded as leaders in every sense of life, so we wouldn't expect less in the sex sphere, and Christian is the perfect embodiment of this patriarchal binary through the parallel opposites of active and passive. He is an expert in dominance who enjoys abusive sexual relationships as long as he is in control, or so we believe at first. As the plot progresses, Anastasia appears to reverse this traditional role both in general life and in the BDSM environment, sometimes taking an active role instead. For instance, Anastasia chooses the limits of the sex contract between her and Christian, Similarly, while in the contract it seems clear that Christian owns the dominant power, when Anastasia agrees to sign the contract, she willingly accepts the role of inferiority. And this breaks with a powerful powerless dichotomy, since only her signature grants them the possibility of enjoying the proposed relationship. At the same time, the submissive position that Anna adopts suits her natural innocence an Xbox in Christian's playroom. At the beginning of the novel she has no experience with sex. Christian, on the other hand, is a sexually experienced man who rejects romantic love. However, it takes little time for both Anna to lose her sexual innocence and start to get into Christian sexual games and for Christian to fall in love with Anna. Anastasia has this idea of love borrowed from her English books. Hence, before getting acquainted with Christian, she never pictured love in an aggressive way. So, it is paradoxical that both of the characters start to develop serious feelings for one another in a strictly sexual relationship. In this story in which BDSM plays an important role, pain and pleasure happen to be present again. For Christian only conceives sexual passion through pain. And Anastasia, who has never thought of a connection between sex and pain, finds pleasure as she immerses herself in the dark side of it. Now, there is a less obvious hierarchy that requires a deeper understanding of the text. This opposite is related to age, adulthood and childhood. When the book starts, Anastasia is about to graduate from college, a crucial point in her life. Yes, she is more than an adult officially, but now she is expected to be fully independent as a person. Therefore, the boundary between adolescence and adulthood is blurred while Anna is transitioning from one stage to another. Similarly, Christian seems to be a full-grown adult. He has his own company and has cultivated his own success, which is an impressive one. But as we learn more about him, he looks more like a child that is searching for the love that his mother never gave him. Early life for Christian has been traumatic, and although it serves to explain his current attitudes towards love, it also demonstrates that he is stuck in his childhood. We now understand why Roland Barthes said that the authority of the meaning of a text is conferred on the reader and the author's possible intentions should not be considered. So, the construction was interesting after all, no? Let us know what your thoughts are and please share further contributions with us. Thank you so much for listening to our episodes, we are delighted to have had such a nice audience. If you still would like to contact us, we will keep the Instagram account open, although we might not post. Goodbye, bookaholics, and see you in another life.